How do you explain the joy of getting any size soft drink for just a buck from McDonald's? Well, it's like... Yeah, like that. Get $1 any size soft drink from McDonald's. Joy included. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Can I be combined with any other offer or combo meal? The following is a My Talk 1071 production. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, you betcha, yeah. If it's made in Minnesota, <laughs> who's making it and how? Yeah, you got that right. It's the makers of Minnesota. Focusing on the products and services uniquely made in Minnesota and conversations with the makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators in Minnesota about how they conceived of their products and how they brought them to market. With Stephanie Hansen, it's the makers of Minnesota. Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and we are here for Makers of Minnesota. This is episode 14. Thank you, everyone, who's been sending in comments and listening about the stories of the Makers of Minnesota. It's been very fun to record everything. If you are just joining us, you can always follow our stories on Facebook. We've also got a Twitter account and an Instagram account. And you can find all the podcasts on Podcast One. You can find them on iTunes. They're also on the MyTalk 1071 show page uh, that we have for podcasts there. And you can find other podcasts, too. If you like what you're hearing, we've got uh, five different podcasts for you to take advantage of. Today, I am here with Dean Phillips, who is a serial entrepreneur, I think is how I will introduce you, my friend. Serial, not not as like the stuff you eat in for breakfast in the morning. Not right? yet, yeah, like, but like I wouldn't constantly. put it past you to be thinking <laughs> about cereal as well. Um, I think you and I first met, and maybe you don't even remember this, but we met, honestly, I think it was like 16 years ago when I was working at City Pages. I was an advertising sales manager. Oh, my gosh. And you were with Philips Vodka. Mm -hmm. You're obviously, that's your family business. And you had just started playing around and inventing with a product called UV Vodka. Yeah, you got it. And... I was very impressed with your team. You were kind of in a small office over in Northeast Minneapolis, and you were inventing these UV-colored vodka flavors, and I thought, wow, that's so unique and so different. And lo and behold, a UV vodka probably has become a fairly large seller of your business. It was, yeah, it became a very big one. It was, And that was just a reinvention of the old Phillips-flavored vodkas from the 1950s. It's funny yeah. that, like, the things that are old become new again, mm-hmm. right? It's absolutely true. You know, beverages, food and, amb- food and beverages are, and a lot of culture are just, they're fashion. Yeah. And they, you know, they come and go, and, and nothing is brand new. Everything is a, a new exploration of something old. So let's just talk about you for a little bit. Mm-hmm. You've lived in the Twin Cities your whole life. Is yeah, that my correct? Whole life, yeah. Um, I read a little bit about you before you came mm-hmm. in. I did not realize that your uh, you were adopted, that mm-hmm. your father mm-hmm. died in Vietnam. That's right. Yeah. And you were six months old at the six time? Six months old. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your mom got remarried, right. and she remarried Eddie Phillips, who was your father, who has since passed from cancer. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, um, I do a lot of work with Certix and have over the years, and the Certix family has been selling liquor there since 1934. Mm-hmm. And... People uh, really in the Northeast area kind of appreciate Certix because they've done a lot for the neighborhood and their characters in their own right, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember Mr. Certix telling me, Jim Certix telling me, what a phenomenal guy uh, Eddie was. Mm. And 
you know, Certix always has funny stuff to say about people in the liquor business, and it's kind of a funny business because you get a lot of characters, but mm. he really just talked so much about how generous your dad was and what a neat, fun guy he was. Tell me a little bit about your dad. Yeah, he, he was an amazing, amazing man. And Did you the, always think so? I mean, even when you were a teenager? Yeah, and... yeah I mean, I, you know, I don't want to be that one guy who says, I always love my dad or yeah. both my parents. My mom's amazing, too. I, I'm an amazingly lucky guy. And... And not just because Eddie adopted me when I was a little boy, but uh, because he was an extraordinary father and then a business partner and mentor and um, just an extraordinary guy. And See, and he embodied he embodied everything uh, that his father and grandparents and grandparents before him, uh, the, the values and principles that are important. And, and business has always been really a, a means to an end for us. And philanthropy is the end. And he really embodied that. When he would create success, we shared it with our employees and uh, with the community, and that's really what drives me to this day. So I, I thank him every day for that blessing. Did you have uh, brothers and sisters as well? Yeah, I have a younger brother, Tyler, mm-hmm. who is a physician in Los Angeles, the smart one in the family. <laughs> <laughs> every There's every family needs a doctor one, and, a, right. and a distiller, right? <laughs> uh, and then I have a, a younger brother and sister, J.J. and Hutton, who are in college right now. So, Gosh, a mm-hmm. lot younger. A lot younger. Okay, mm-hmm. I kind of have that family too. I have a brother that's like 24 and a brother that's 25 and a yeah. sister that's 50. Oh, bingo. Yeah. Yeah, and mine are 22. Kind of so yeah, so we're, it makes us normal families. And it's fun. In this day and age. Yeah, it's fun to oh, have yeah. like a whole new generation of people that are your family that you get to spend time with and hear their viewpoints on Absolutely. things. Absolutely. I've got great brothers and sisters. So you, okay, so you go to college, and then did you join the family distilling business right away? Well, when I was, so my first job in, I was probably about 14, was at the Phillips, old Phillips plant in North Minneapolis, and I worked in Northeast Minneapolis, I'm sorry, and I worked in the print shop, helped, I I printed menus for bars and restaurants, and worked in the warehouse, and, um, you know, little did I know at the time, but my father was affording me some early experience in the business. Sure. And when I graduated from college, um, I expected to go right into the business. And he said, nah, you got to go make your mistakes somewhere else and learn learn business from someone else. Were you mad? And earn the right. Oh, I was furious. Yeah, I can I imagine. I think probably the only time in my life I can tell you I was really, really upset with my dad. Because you really had no idea that was coming. You just thought, okay, yeah, this was, is what I'll I, do. I felt, and... yeah, I was a young guy out of college. I felt sure. someone entitled, and this is what he had done, and his father before him, and his father before him. And uh, it was the best gift he ever gave me was to go do something else. So I got a job uh, with a small bicycle apparel manufacturer called In Motion. We made bicycle apparel that had a liquid-filled bladder that was sewn into like bicycle shorts yep. and gloves and saddles, make the made it a little more comfortable. And it was a startup, uh, was a startup business. And I learned so much from that experience. And they manufactured their own like shorts and, and shorts. shirts, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Then, didn't they manufacture it here locally too? Yeah, we did it. We did it locally. Mm-hmm. So funny. There was a woman that I interviewed right before you today, yeah. Laura Lavac. Um, oh my gosh! Who Laura designed and I a together. lot of those pieces? I oh, think. she's great. Yeah, and she's still and she has a wonderful company now. She's, she does a great just, line of oh, wonderful. That's funny. She's podcast number lucky thirteen. So how funny we yeah. were. We were yeah young employees of this little startup company in motion. And and, le- and I would have, I'm sure she said the same thing. That's where did. we learned how to be entrepreneurs. She talked about mm-hmm. it a lot and how it was really a life changing situation for her. Just sure. learning actually how to do things, how to manufacture a product, how to mm-hmm. take a design and bring it to to market. So mm-hmm. how long did you work there? So I worked there for about uh, two and a half years, and then approached my father again and said, "I think I'm ready." And he said, "Well, you're ready if you're willing to work in the warehouse and work in on the production line." And if you promised to go back to school and uh, pursue an MBA and laid out the ground rules. 
And I said, you know, sign me up. Okay, so mm-hmm. he made you go back and get an MBA. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Did he have an MBA? He, he had a law degree. Okay. And, um, and recognized that you know, when you work in a family business, you know, the, the greatest challenge is to earn the respect of those with whom you work. Yep. Uh, because nepotism is going to be very defeating, both, both for, uh, in this case, for me and for, for the employees. So uh, he felt appro- appropriately that to earn, the, to earn the right to work in the business and, uh, and achieve that I had to, he had to raise the bar higher. And I'm glad he did. And, and my business degree had, you know, paid a lot of dividends. I was going to ask mm-hmm. about that because my husband has an MBA and I did not, and mm-hmm. we ran a business together. And I was always impressed by how many things he actually learned from mm-hmm. that MBA that I can't necessarily say like my college degree prepared me yeah. for being an entrepreneur, but his MBA really seemed to make a huge difference in the lifespan of our business. Mm-hmm. Would you say the same for you? Would you would. encourage that? I had two professors that made a huge difference. Uh, one, my marketing professor, Ken, Ken Roaring. Uh, I remember one class that to this very day probably had more impact on my entire business career than anything else I've done. And, and, it's, and it's true of so many things. If, if you make one great relationship, uh, come up with one bright idea, it makes a lot of hard work and a lot of you know, blood, sweat, and tears worth, worth the time. And that was, that's exactly what my MBA was like. Okay, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Yeah. So you're then you're on the line, you're moving your way up in the family business. Mm-hmm. We kind of talked early on about how things are cyclical. And the spirits industry is very um, having a renaissance right now in sure terms is. of you're considered like the old guard. You're <laughs> the successful guy. Yep. And now all these other people are taking their knowledge and starting up new spirit companies. Mm-hmm. When you were at Philips, did you feel like you were the big guy? Did you know you were the big oh, guy at the goodness, time? Oh, my goodness, no. We've, we've always been the underdog. And and it wasn't long ago when Phillips was the smallest of the bigs, if you will. Uh, because and, you really just had vodka, right? Yeah. Well, a, a little quick history. Uh, we, we were a distributor. Right, yep. right after Prohibition, we entered the business as a distributor for uh, two of the Canadian distillers that were ready to get back into the U.S. market. And uh, we did that for a couple of years. And then in 1934, one of the Phillips sales reps, a German immigrant named Al Dorsch, I was calling on saloons downtown Minneapolis on Washington Avenue uh, and saw that men were putting little peppermint candies into their poorly aged American whiskey, bourbon, okay. bourbon that was coming back onto the market. And he went to my great-grandfather, Jay Phillips, at our plant, or at our that time, our warehouse in northeast Minneapolis, and said, guys were putting peppermint candies in their, in their whiskey, and it kind of tastes like peppermint schnapps from the old country. So what do you say we maybe make some up? God, that's and, how it started, and that's how Phil, that's how Phillips entered the actually the you know the liquor business as a brand. And the first product we introduced was Phillips peppermint schnapps. That's hilarious. and Al Dorsch went from a Phillips sales representative yep. uh, to our master distiller uh, and, and rectifier. He he invented all of the original Phillips products, beginning with peppermint, and we make it the same way to this day, the same recipe, same ingredients. And uh, while I don't encourage anybody to find a ninety year old bottle of Phillips peppermint schnapps. I bet it would taste pretty darn close. That's to funny. Today. Mm-hmm. And then from mm-hmm. there, the vodka. And then and... from there, uh, and then from there, we created a, a broader line of schnapps. And then uh, in the 1950s, created the first colored flavored vodkas in the country. See, uh, I didn't realize mm-hmm. that you vodka. were redoing it at when you were doing introducing sure. UV. I thought you were like this mad genius. Oh yeah, I'd like to think of myself. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't 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 give away that secret. Um, yeah, Phillips vodka had come out right after World War II. It was about I think. Phillips after Smirnoff was one of the first two or three vodkas in America after uh, after World War II, and the colored flavored vodkas came out soon thereafter. 
And um, and that those were just UV became just a reinvention of that kind of tired old line of Philips mm-hmm. products that um, I saw a lot of potential in looking backwards to create something new. When I was uh, in your place, I don't know. I think you had me taste this there. Mm-hmm. You were working on a new whiskey oh. called Revel Revel Stoke, Stoke, which sure. was a spiced whiskey, and or I remember whiskey. thinking. Oh, I don't know about this. Like, you and the rest of the country. <laughs> yeah, and I and I look back on it, uh-huh. and I think it feels to me like you were one of the first people to do a spiced whiskey. Yeah, it, yeah. I think I think it's fair to say that Revel Stoke, which we introduced, I think in two thousand, so yeah, about sixteen, yeah. seventeen years ago, uh, was the first flavored whiskey. And now, as you well know, Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, every major whiskey brand in the world now has flavored variants. Yep. Uh, we have a little bit of a history of creating some, being a little bit ahead of the curve. Sometimes too far ahead. It can be. Yeah. It can. It can happen, mm-hmm. and then you have to wait to monetize your exactly. product. I've developed a few products that never got to market because mm-hmm. we were too early. Great ideas yeah. that still may resurrect themselves somewhere down the road. But they say sometimes it's better to evolutionize than revolutionize. Yeah. But then again, Belvedere Vodka was an example of something that was really my father's brainchild that uh, that was the right product at the right time and created a whole new category. That's um uh Certix has actually mentioned that mm-hmm. product to me just in the amazing ability of Eddie to mm-hmm. actually bring a whole new category to bear yeah. um with the premium vodkas. Another um interesting uh thing is were you the kind of originator of grain to glass? Well, I'd say prairie prairie vodka, yeah. which is probably the product of which I'm most proud of in my career so far. And was that literally yours? Like, did you concept that? And... Yeah. Well, it was. It was. First of all, nothing. You and your team. Sorry. I, ideas are cheap. Sure. Yeah, execution is hard. And while it was my brainchild, I mean, it really it took a it took a village to bring to market. And and we had sold Belvedere vodka, and the pendulum I thought would swing back from. Um, uh, Belvedere and and Grey Goose mm-hmm. and Kettle One, you know these were these were sexy brands and highly and, distilled. Uh, yeah, highly. Yeah, how many times were they distilled yep. and what nightclub were they available in and who was drinking them? Uh, and and they were elevated. And Prairie represented almost you know something antithetical to that, which was small, local, um, and most importantly, the big differentiator was that it was the only and to this day I believe the only vodka or only distilled spirit that can trace its original grain back to the actual field that it came from. And we work with three family farms uh, here in Minnesota mm-hmm. exclusively that grow all the corn for prairie. And much like a fine wine, you know, when you, when you enjoy a wine and you can actually go to the vineyard and, and see and touch and feel the dirt from which it came, that's the, that's true of prairie. And they so are... I think we did start something that is, and I think it's just beginning, that that, that trend in spirits to, to really better understand where it comes from and who made it. When we talk about um, spirits on our radio show, The Weekly Dish, our food show, sure. There is this grain to glass movement and people talk about the terroir of the spirit like they do of the wine. And now you're hearing about the terroir of coffee and of the rye of different types of beers and the hops. And it is really interesting, again, that everything is lifestyle, like you mentioned, and it's all kind of cyclical Mm because we're getting back to really the roots of farming, right? Um, Which is where a lot of this began. So. You're sitting there, you're like at UV, you're at Phillips, you're running this company and you're, did you get, were you moving up the ladder all the way along with each product invention? Mm-hmm. Well, when we, when we introduced Belvedere Vodka, it changed our business considerably and most of our resources and energy and, and leadership, including my father's kind of went in that direction. Yep. And here was this tired, but wonderful old portfolio of Phillips brands. 
that and I and I have a very soft spot in my heart for history, local mm-hmm. history and heritage. And um, and the more I explored our archives and our old recipes and memorabilia, uh, it inspired me to start using that as really the kind of the, the impetus to look forward. And uh, that's where UV came from. Um, and that's certainly where some even our flavored whiskeys, Rock and Rye, was something that Phillips and other companies made back in the you know the early days in the nineteen thirties. And it was simply whiskey, rye whiskey mm-hmm. with rock sugar and fruit in it. And essentially flavored whiskey. Yeah. Like how do you so how do you make how do you make spirits that are not universally loved? How do you make them more palatable to to a new generation of drinkers? That was kind of the, the impetus. And that's where Revelstoke came from. Not to mention Captain Morgan was doing pretty well in rum yeah. with spiced. <laughs> I figured, you know, why not try the same in whiskey? Um, and it became a playground. And we hired a, a dynamic team of, of um, co-workers, that, yep. uh, and we had a lot of blank whiteboard space and thought anything's possible. And we dwelled in possibilities and um, continually looked backwards to, to move forwards. And uh, Prairie was uh, probably the one that, I, ironically, uh, was the only of its kind and, and in many ways very fashion-forward, mm-hmm. but Ironically, not innovative at all. It was simply doing things the way it would have been done 100 years ago. Right. And, and then it becomes about marketing. So marketing. are you good at marketing? Well, <laughs> am I good at marketing? Um, you know, I'm not a traditional marketer in that I rely on market research and focus groups. Uh, in, my, in my history, the best decisions have been made based on gut. And Blink, you know, the, the yeah. Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, mm-hmm. to me is the best textbook for how I like to do things. How and, did you learn how to listen to your gut or listen to your intuition? Because mm-hmm. I think many people have it, and it takes them a long time to figure out that it's mm-hmm. worth tuning into. Well, I, you know, I was very lucky, too. I, I'll confess that uh, when when you're working for a company that we had, which had a nice foundation of business, it was easy to take risks. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm the not, risks, risks are different. Of course. So so I have great, that's why I have such... Respect for young entrepreneurs, particularly who are creating distilleries and breweries, who are ta- who are putting everything they have into this kind of thing. You know, I was lucky, <clears throat> and 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 in my case, you know, taking a little bit of a chance was kind of kind of an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And in fact, not just an easy thing; it was the only thing to do. And I've also learned that when you do when you conduct market research, typically and do focus groups, you take from it what you already believe, and you dismiss probably the most important nuggets of information that that. Um, marketers make mistakes all the time. And I want to make sure that all the listeners know that for every success I and we've had, we've had plenty of failures. There's a million, yeah. Plenty. And I will even say with Belvedere Vodka, we introduced a brand called Rohol, which was a German-made liqueur that kind of tasted like Jägermeister. And when we developed both at the same time, I was a little more focused on Rohol. My father was more on Belvedere. And I thought Rohol was going to be our big success and Belvedere was going to be a disaster. Who's going to buy a twenty-five dollar <laughs> bottle of vodka? We're out of our minds. Yep. You know, but we have the Jägermeister killer in Rojo. And early orders from distributors, Rojo was outselling Belvedere about ten to one. And within six months, Rojo was discontinued, and Belvedere was you know a rocket ship. That's funny. And we actually on our wall at our Talenti Gelato offices keep a sculpture, a Rojo sculpture, on the wall to remind us that you know not everything is gold. We and you got to make some, you have to have to have some losers to have some winners. We have a joke around our house. My husband had, we did direct mail postcards mm-hmm. and we had Party Pigs was one of the brands <laughs> sure. that we were going to launch. And so whenever something comes up, we always say, is that a Party Pig? <laughs> is that a Party Pig? Is that one of the failed uh-huh. ideas? So you have Party Pigs, we have Rojo. Yes, uh-huh. we do. So you're you're at the company and what made you decide to leave 
and do Talenti Gelato. So uh, the spirits business is, is a fantastic and fun fun business. And uh, my father and our partner, Steve Gill, had, after after leaving the Belvedere business mm-hmm. in the hands of Louis Vuitton, to, which we had sold it to, um, had bought a, a significant stake in this little gelato company out of Dallas that was founded by uh, Josh Hochschuler, who became our partner as well. And uh, my father wanted to, quote unquote, Belvedere the ice cream category, which was take that same template of elevating via package, price, and product. Was he a connoisseur, or why ice cream in particular, or did he just see an opportunity? Saw the opportunity. And uh, you know, back, back in 1993, when we first started working on Belvedere, which was owned at that time by the Polish government, okay, uh, and we first obtained the distribution rights and eventually bought the brand and distillery. Which I'm sure is a story in itself. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, if you want to do <laughs> that. Be, oh, more. You want it's, uh, it makes a James Bond movie seem boring. <laughs> Uh, but, but what my father recognized uh, back then was that Bel- uh, Stoli and Absolute were the most expensive vodkas in America uh, at about $15 a bottle. Yep. And there was an opportunity to trade people up to something much more premium priced. And we used the same template that worked for Belvedere um, on Talenti, which was uh, Ben and Jerry's and haagen owned the premium pint yep. ice cream market. And we thought there was an opportunity to, to introduce something that had much more of a European flair and a much more unique package. Uh, a little bit of a higher price, yep. but still a very uh, affordable luxury. So uh, once again, I thought my dad was crazy, as he, I thought he was with Belvedere. Gonna so be like strike two for me. Man. Yeah, <laughs> I have to, I'm eating a lot of humble pie <laughs> in this interview. Uh, and I thought, and in the beginning, I said I'm going to going to stay in this liquor thing for a while. And he said, okay, well, you know, uh, we're going to build this pretty cool business. So you know, you know, let me know. Yeah, let me know when you let me know. Yeah, let me know if you change your mind. And. Um, and he passed away in 2011, right when Talenti was really starting to, to catch fire. Was he sick a long time? Yeah, he had he had uh, a disease called multiple myeloma, but lived almost almost 10 years with it, and most of them good years. Um, but when he passed away, uh, you know, his legacy, his second legacy, was going to be Talenti, and uh, it was an honor and somewhat of a responsibility to uh, to try to, to make that happen. And my partners, Josh and Steve Gill, invited me to. to to join them and making it, uh, creating a, tr- a new trio. Yeah, and it was it was fabulous. It was a really, it is a really good product. Thank you. It just like I remember having it for the first time, and I'd been in Italy and thinking nobody makes gelato like they make in Italy, mm-hmm. and feeling like it was awfully darn close. Yeah, Josh Hochschuler, who founded the business in Dallas, he had he had been living in Argentina, working for an investment bank many years ago, and befriended a family that made gelato mm-hmm. uh, in in Buenos Aires. And learned the craft, learned the trade, and came back to the States thinking that this is going to be a grand slam. So we opened a little gelato cafe in Dallas, uh, which did not do so well. But he received orders from grocery stores in da- in the Dallas area for his gelato. And uh, as a result of having to package his product, he couldn't couldn't buy like a nice container like Ben & Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs had. Right. So he had to go out and find some what was ever available. He found these plastic, lid, plastic jars with plastic lids. And lo and behold... You know, something started happening. Yeah, that's and, and Americans, you know, we all have friends that travel to Italy. Say, oh my gosh, I eat gelato five times a day, and it's the most delicious. It is they, crazy you can't find how it here. They eat gelato there. It like literally crazy. five times a day is about right. Yeah. Well, we we hope Americans become just as crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the rest was history. It showed that Americans have this insatiable appetite, literally an appetite for anything that enhances their own brand, if you will. You know, anything that seems exotic. Yeah. Or foreign uh, or sophisticated, you know, we can't. Not everybody can travel to Venice and right. to Rome and 
uh, on a weekly basis. But when you open a jar of Talenti, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of traveled to Italy. And, and when it's you open like a, a little luxury that sure. you feel like, oh, you're not breaking the bank. Exactly. Yeah. And, not, and, 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 and we say this about Belvedere so often, you know, um, you can't buy the same car that George Clooney or Jay-Z or Kanye West drives or owns. Yeah. You can't wear the same watch. Uh, you can't wear the same clothes, but you can buy the same bottle of vodka. Right, and at, you can sit in your nightclub in your bottle mm-hmm. room and feel like you're all that in a bag of chips. Exactly, and in the case of Talenti, for under five dollars, you can be eating, you know, the very, very best. So affordable luxury is certainly a theme that we, yep. you know, continue to uh, promote. So you sold that company mm-hmm. to Unilever. Unilever, right? Um, and so you're you're. Out of the you're the chairman of your board at Phillips, mm-hmm. but you're not involved in the day to day. Right. So can I just ask? A, I've never met a chairman of a board before of a successful company. Like, what do you do besides? <laughs> do you go to the board meetings and do you review the P and Ls or, I mean, in your day to day life, like, mm-hmm. is it a lot of work to be the chairman of the board, or are you just looking for malfeasance and making sure that it doesn't <laughs> just totally go off course? That's a great you know. When I was a kid, I thought, you know, a chairman of the board is someone who would look like Moses or something. You know, be like 80 years old and have a grovelly voice and have some kind of a, you know. Charlton Heston. I used to think they were mallets. You know, you yeah. Hit them, you know, all the, you know. Come to order. Yes, come to order. All those in favor. Uh, you know, ultimately, the role of a, the chair of a, any board, you know, whether it's a for-profit business or non-profit business, is to ensure good governance. Yep. Um, primarily to hold the CEO, whoever the operations leader is, is accountable. And that, that's, that's the task of a chair chairperson. Uh, to hold the management team of an organization accountable for performance or for pursuing mission uh, and ensuring there's transparency and um, uh, and, and and fiduciary responsibilities. And it's, so it's, it's, you... it is a responsibility. I, and I, I will say the most difficult task I've ever faced as a chair of a board was not at our businesses but in the nonprofit sectors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oof, I've yeah. been on. Alina Health, I, you may have seen in the news today that the – uh, the nurses were protesting outside of yep. the Marriott Hotel where the chair of the board of Alina, who happens to work for General Mills, uh, was in meetings. And um, You might you know, have been in those meetings. Yeah, it could have been, you know, could have been anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your day-to-day there, do you like once a month open up the books and just poke around? <laughs> do you meet with senior leadership? Uh, we've heard a lot about... Go, uh, corporations that have not had good governance. Right. Wells Fargo is a recent example. Sure. And I, I would imagine you take to heart very seriously your family business and wanting to make sure that things are going the way they're supposed to. So how do you make sure that's all happening? Yeah, how you know, do you know when you just look at a P&L? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that, that, uh, looking at a P&L is to me a very small part of you know, governance, um, you know, making sure that you know, cult, you know, increasingly, especially in this day and age, you know, people expect um, uh, principled cultures to be um, yes. developed and, and practiced in organizations. And it is the responsibility of boards to, to ensure that is, that's happening. Um, I, I won't speak to the board of Wells Fargo and what they could have or should have been doing to oversee uh, their CEO and what, what might be happening. Mm-hmm. But, but our, our task, as I see, whether you're a member of a board or the chair, is to keep eyes and ears open, and um, most importantly, to let management teams do their work. Uh, but your 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 task is to hold somebody accountable. Yeah. Uh, the, the way a voter holds a, a mayor, a senator, right. a governor, or a president accountable, and and, it, and that's 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 the task of a board. And, and if not, you vote them off. And being in a nonprofit board, mm-hmm. 
is, I mean, everything in nonprofit is so critical and mission critical because they're always dealing with um, just money isn't as, as much as there would be in a for-profit company. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I don't know, I've learned a lot from being on nonprofit boards. Some of it awesome, some of it hell, but worthwhile in the yeah. end. You know, when you're the person that has to decide to get rid of somebody that's worked there for 15 years, but you know that for the health of the nonprofit moving forward, that might be the best thing. Um, it's hard to make those kind of recommendations, but that sure is. Um, do you think? And I mean, it's—I don't mean to put you on the spot to speak to any specific wrongdoing at any company, but when I hear those stories about like the Wells Fargo's, and I think about. Um, I just watched the movie The Big Short, so big banking and Wall Street comes to my mind. I always wonder, like, shouldn't there be someone in these companies that has an inkling of what is going on? And shouldn't that be the leadership at the top? Because isn't that systemic of the way that the organization runs and how information is disseminated? Do you feel that way when you hear these stories? Like, hey, someone could have seen this? And, you know, I think well-managed organizations, again, for-profit or non-profit, um, you know, should have cultures in which uh, people who see or suspect wrongdoing can um, be supported in calling attention to it. Right. And you know, but far too many organizations do not provide comfort or security for those who yeah. are willing you to do the, the right thing. Yeah. And, yep. and you know, we have a uh, there. There are lots of examples of whistleblowers, whistleblowers uh, being persecuted instead of being saluted. And uh, it is incumbent on on boards and managers and. And everybody in companies yeah. to, to to you know to do the right thing. And but I also recognize when 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 people who are working at Wells Fargo who may have seen wrongdoing going on, they have families to feed yeah, and bills the to pay. People yeah, and... and that's that's why. So that's why I do think. I I will say that it, boards in this country and my, frankly I think in uh, corporations around the world have become um, uh, little clubs mm-hmm. that love to sit around tables. Uh, but don't like to do the dirty work, and the yeah. dirty work is their responsibility, which is to to look for and and listen for uh, and and sense uh, when things just don't seem right. And it's a little subjective. And in business school, you're trained to look at numbers, you know, not to um, assess feelings as well. Uh, but I think there's a responsibility, in it, and we're seeing what what can happen at companies when yeah. when when the mission isn't pursued and when cultures are not formed correctly and. That's you you talk about mission um, and you talk about leadership, and I know you're involved in a lot of nonprofits. I've seen you at some galas, and we all go to these galas, and we raise money, which is good. Um, are you still involved with We Day? Yeah, oh, We Day is, as Prairie might be my the brand of for which I you know, have the most pride uh, in my experience. We Day is probably the the initiative uh, of which I'm most proud. Did you start that? I didn't start it. Uh, it has been in Canada for many, many years. In and it fact, was started it's culturally, by a twelve-year-old kid, yeah, right? A 12, Greg Kielberger, twelve-year-old boy in Toronto, wakes up uh, over his morning Cheerios one morning, reads the paper, and uh, sees an article about a twelve-year-old Pakistani boy who had been enslaved in a carpet factory. Uh, he had been killed by the owners of the carpet factory because he had spoken out against uh, this slavery. And Craig started a little program at his school to try to raise money. Oh, he called. He called some organizations and said, I'd like to help. And they said, well, do you have mom or dad's credit card? And he thought, this isn't the way I want to help. Yeah. So he started a little club at his, at his school, which has become culturally embedded in Canada as, as an organization that essentially inspires philanthropy amongst youth. And every um, throughout all the Canadian provinces, 
um, in all the major cities, there's an annual We Day, and it's all. And we talk about those galas that we go to. Yeah, uh, We Day is simply the huge celebration for kids who are doing good in their community. And a dear friend of mine, David Stillman, uh, came to me one day uh, about four years ago and said, "You have to go check out one of these We Days in Canada." So flew my family up to Vancouver. God, had the best never, city in the world. Great, great town. And had never been so wowed by an experience in my life. And David said, hey, why don't, let's let's bring this to Minnesota. So Minnesota was, along with Washington State, Seattle, uh, were the first two in the country. And now we have 650 service clubs throughout Minnesota and public, private, and parochial schools. And uh, we are saluting the – just the last week we had 16,000 kids and yep. almost 2,000 teachers at the Excel Center being celebrated for doing great. And uh, in my experience in philanthropy – there is no better way to make a difference in the future than, than inspiring young people to be givers instead of takers. And to teach them to teach how them. valuable their contributions can be at such a young age. And reward them. Everything's, we live in an incentive-based society. We're human beings. Mm-hmm. Whether it's economic incentives or, in this case, celebratory incentives, you know, there has to be something to aspire to. with the Joe Jonas yeah. and the Selena Gomez's of the world. And with all due respect to all the organizations that throw beautiful galas, I would argue that these 16,000 kids were probably more deserving uh, of celebration than a lot of us are at these beautiful events. Well, and it's pretty neat to just think about the power of what that could do. If you take a kid in their teen years and you amortize their lifetime Mm -hmm. of their ability of working hours and contributing hours, and you could really get some very cool things going on there. I always thought there's a lot of countries where they make the kids have a certain amount of community service as part of their high school experience or junior high experience. I wish more people did that here. I right. wish it was mandatory everywhere, actually. Exactly. I'd I love the was. gap year. I'd love a gap year Wouldn't after, nice? like, you graduate from high school mm-hmm. and then you don't go to college. You have one year where you do service. Public service. And you mm-hmm. have to do the service. You have to, like, document it or something, and then you can go on to college after that. I think our country would be a better one if if we mandated some kind of service, whether it be locally, domestic, overseas, even military, some kind of service to others. It would be a fundamentally different country. This is kind of a weird question to ask you, but you are a successful person. You're a person who has means. You must get asked to donate to things all the time. Doesn't that hurt? It, it, I just, I don't know how you can say no. And how do you like, do you have to set up a structure? So like if it meets these criteria, because you can't say yes to everything. And the, N and O are the two hardest letters for me to pronounce in the whole English language. And <laughs> believe me, I, you know, in my younger years, I said yes to everything, and I paid a price for it. Yeah, you know, and and learned important lessons too that um, can't say yes to everything. And my great grandparents started a foundation back in the 1940s that uh, to this day, you know, five generations later, um, still exists and and provides us. Uh, construct to to better administer our philanthropy that's smart but that said i you know i don't hide behind the veil of 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 that i i try to understand what our community needs are and and learn and listen and keep my ear to the ground and um you know say yes to as many things I, as i can and it's like and it's like it's like in bed you know i look at philanthropy the same way i do it uh, uh business mm-hmm. uh, which are uh, it's just the return on investments are different. When you invest in a for-profit enterprise, you expect a financial return. When you invest in a nonprofit or philanthropic enterprise, you expect some kind of a social return uh, or improvement. And you know, measuring those things are often complicated. And it, uh, it's interesting um, when you talk about that there needs to be some uh, social improvement or some gain of some sort. 
that became kind of a game changer in the last 15 years, people looking at nonprofits and saying, well, it's great that you're doing all this work, but what what is the end result and how are we really impacting these people's lives that we're trying to help? Otherwise, we're just creating jobs for ourselves, right? That's true. Let's have something, some kind of an outcome. I know there's been a lot of outcome-based talk in the nonprofit world. There has been, but I would also argue, and this is, I've learned this firsthand, that you can't always measure success, especially when it comes to philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. How do you measure so the the improvement of a child's life? You yeah, can't. I don't know. And and if you only look at paper and you only look at numbers, you know that doesn't tell the whole story. So um, it's it, it's no different than doing research on anything you might invest in, uh, and to keep to, to really to to go look and listen and understand and meet the beneficiaries. You know that I've learned recently, in fact, very recently that. The best, the best way to identify those returns are not to look at reports, but to really go into the facilities or, yeah, or meet, the pe- the people. Yeah, meet the people mm-hmm. who are benefiting. Because if you can change one life, um, you know, that sometimes is the only return, sometimes and oftentimes the only return you need to feel good. Yeah, and it's pretty easy, really, to it change is. one life, isn't yeah. it? Helping a kid read for one hour That a week, is, yeah, that, really life-changing. That social impact yep. is probably more profound than some of the millions of dollars that many philanthropists think are making big differences. It's funny you say that because actually tomorrow I'm going to the Shakopee Valley Women's Prison oh, wow. to have a tour there. And one of the main things that they're finding is that helping them learn to read and their children, because a lot of these kids... They're born in the prison and then they're in foster system. Helping them learn to read is like the number one thing we can do to keep people from being imprisoned again. And it's pretty easy, right? It's easy. Um, Talk a little bit about, I had the, um, your grandma was Dear Abby. (laughs) She was. And Mm -hmm. she lived in 740. (laughs) River Drive. Sure. (laughs) And my mother-in-law is 84 and moved into 740 about four years ago, right about when your grandma had died, I think. So the we were looking at apartments and we toured her apartment. Oh wow. Which was real mm-hmm. interesting because over the years she'd sort of morphed and taken up more spaces mm-hmm. so it was a sort of disjointed thing but she had this very beautiful um like a vanity in her closet which I just I remembered looking at that and thinking wow it was like a movie star but you didn't. Did you have any idea how impactful that your grandma and subsequently her sister Ann Landers would be? Yeah, you know, I. We knew we knew they were famous when we were growing up. I, there's no no question that I didn't know how widely. I, I would. I think some have told me that they were the most well known women in the world. Uh, it's so very, crazy at the isn't peaks it? of their respective careers. And in fact, uh, my grandmother Abby would often send me letters from teenagers my age at you know this is back tw- <laughs> of you know, 30 years she ago would. and asking just for perspective you know, she was notorious for identifying the expert in any field that uh, she had a question in and in the case of teenagers of course who would she turn to but yeah. her, you know her, her grandkids and she was uh, she was extraordinary but i will say that it wasn't until she passed away and then i read her the obituaries in the in the various uh, uh, media that i recognized how she made some extraordinary early headway in in, in social change. Yeah, um, you know, in in gay rights, uh, women's rights, uh, human rights, and civil rights. Uh, and I think her legacy, which is to some kind of comedic, you know, giving advice through the newspaper, uh, I think her real legacy was um, in civil rights. And and that I really honor her in a different way now that I recognize what she did. I think knowingly, but didn't receive a lot of credit for it at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and just 
the way that um, I mean, she's still the her kids still write the columns today. Yeah, my aunt right? Jeannie Phillips is yeah now writing the the Dear Abby column. Oh, it's just it's amazing yeah. that something like that has gone on so long. But I cool. tell you, if there's ever a business that will never never go out of style, it's advice, the advice business. Oh, I know. I should be a marriage counselor. <laughs> I swear, I'm so good at it. All right, so I happened to run into you, and the reason we hooked up for this interview was I saw you at Spy House Coffee the other right. day, mm-hmm. a coffee shop I really like. Love Spy House. And you mentioned to me that you're getting ready to start a new adventure. Do you Indeed. want to talk about your next journey Absolutely. as an entrepreneur? And with great respect to Christian uh, at Spy House, and I, I remain a fan of his and Spy House. In fact, we're going to be a customer of theirs. But uh, we're starting a, a, a coffee business, coffee shop business, coffee and crepes. Okay. And... Not unlike Talenti, where we brought a little bit, a slice of Italian life uh, to America. Uh, I've long, every time I travel to France and, you know, walk the streets of Paris, you know, crepes are ubiquitous, part yeah. of Parisian life. And uh, it's almost like a French burrito, right? Yep. Morning, noon, and night, sweet and savory. Uh, they're delicious. Everybody loves them. And I uh, saw, uh, encountered a friend of mine, Ben Hertz, who is another serial entrepreneur, a wonderful one at that. And he was contemplating a coffee business, and we thought, "Hey, why don't we why don't we combine the two?" Sure. So we're uh, opening our first Pennies Coffee Shop uh, downtown Minneapolis here, hopefully in about three weeks, and we're going to give it a shot and try to try to bring a little bit of European culture, both both uh, from a design perspective and uh, quality perspective and food perspective to uh, to the Twin Cities and see how it goes. And hey, you know, you never know. <laughs> okay, I have to like laugh and mm-hmm. just like you are picking the hardest industries. I mean, you in the liquor business, then in the ice cream business, which there were a lot of people in the ice cream business. You make it sound like it was just Hagen dazs and Ben and & Jerry's, and those were the only premiums probably, but not an easy business, grocery in general. Mm-hmm. And now you're coming into the coffee business where obviously we have Caribou right here. We have Starbucks. We have a lot of designer coffee shops that are doing pretty well. So what do you, is is the crepe? The crepe, <laughs> the, crepe. the thing. <laughs> the crepe. <laughs> well, you know, I, the the thing in this in this instance is it's a massive business, and while we we think that um, there are too many coffee shops, perhaps some would say we still drink about half as much coffee annually uh, compared to Europeans. Yeah, uh, and this is very analogous to the Belvedere experiment, which remember uh, Absolute and Stolichnaya, uh, Belvedere kind of leapfrogged, uh, um, Ben and Jerry's and Hagen Dazs. You know, Plenty kind of leapfrogged, and I look at Starbucks and Caribou, which and and they've created extraordinary success and should be honored and appreciated for it. Uh, and they've introduced coffee to America, uh, those two particularly Starbucks. But that also creates the opportunity to trade up. To leapfrog, it's yeah. leapfrog, and and they make wonderful product. Uh, but their environments are kind of they're very consistent, mm-hmm. and they, they represent a certain kind of design aesthetic. And uh, our idea is to uh, create a uh, an environment and spaces that are. A little more inspiring, a little more bright, a little more European, mm-hmm. very high high quality design, and um, and in that respect, leapfrog uh, that that market. Have you thought about adding up. like beer and spirits and wine? We're seeing some coffee shops do that now to make it yeah. more of a longer day. So we're going to use crepes as that uh, as it's as so the way dessert. or crepes mm-hmm. as you say crepe. We're going to do the crepes. So we're going to start with crepes. Um, We've contemplated that, but um, um, we're gonna we're gonna stick with uh, coffee and crepes for now, and and try to create remarkable environments and gathering spaces and and create a unique culture and and even and it, to some degree this is also a social experiment. I, as I reflected on earlier, we we look at business as really a means to an end, mm-hmm. and it's not just about enriching the owners. 
It's about enriching communities and the people that help create that success. So we'll be paying a $15 minimum wage to everybody mm-hmm. in the business. Nobody will be paid less than that. Uh, and we will charge accordingly. And we, we won't be the least expensive cup of coffee in town. Uh, we'll charge a little bit more. But we want we hopefully can demonstrate that by taking great care of people and paying a, a living wage and providing uh, good benefits that you can create a wonderful business and people will support it. I do love that. So there's that. a lot going on here that's not just about the coffee. I do love that you mentioned that because Punch Pizza has mm-hmm. had some success Absolutely. with raising the minimum wage throughout their organization to $15 before it was raised um, nationally. Mm-hmm. And they've seen a lot of success with loyalty and with people that have stayed on. Uh, where's the first location? You said downtown Minneapolis. Where exactly? First location is at 100 Washington Square, uh, which is kind of the high-tech hub of downtown Minneapolis. Now it's a beautiful 1980 Yamasaki building. Yamasaki, of course, was the... I'm trying to think of where that is. It's uh, wa- it's on Washington and Marquette. Okay, so is it Big the white, white building? Yeah, there are yeah. two white buildings okay. designed by... And he was also the designer of the World Trade Centers. Yeah. Um, a beautiful, you know, I'd say mid-century, but it's 1980 design. And uh, we will be in the lobby, which is now being um, enclosed Redone, with some glass, right? exactly. Yep. And uh, in a very dynamic, uh, kind of emerging part of downtown. Yeah. And do you, real estate is obviously the most challenging thing for the restaurateurs. Indeed. So are you already on the hunt for number two, yeah, number we three? Have, uh, number two will be in Linden Hills, it looks like, uh, coming up maybe in about six weeks, maybe two months. And those will be our test units. And if we're successful, I, I think you'll see pennies, perhaps, or who knows, around the country and maybe around the world. Is Penny your mom? <laughs> Penny <laughs> Penny was the grandmother of my business partner. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and that is our name. Um, I liked your business cards here and I Thank like, you. it's kind of a salmon, a light pink. Mm-hmm. You know what this is? This is the color of my bathroom. Well, this then it's is perfect. This the mid-century bathroom, <laughs> right? 1940, the pink and black. You got it. Um, and part of it, yeah, part of the whole design element, it kind of harkens back to that, um, there's a mid-century feel, very elevated, elegant like and European feel. Uh, we hope to have the cleanest, brightest, best looking coffee palaces you've ever been to all right and do you want people to hang out because i always think it's interesting the coffee culture Mm -hmm. we have so many freelance workers now that are conducting meetings and actually doing business in these coffee shops sort of what i've noticed about starbucks is they're redesigning the entire inside of the restaurant instead of having you know lots of tables of two or four where Mm -hmm. one person sits they're having counters and they're having longer communal tables we we will be we aspire to be somewhat um if you if you if you look at um, espresso bars in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, they're mostly grab and go. Yeah, you a lot come of standing in, around. Stand, you stand. Yep. There, there's not. They're very small, small format. They're not designed to sit and hang out and open yep. your laptop and do work for a number of hours. Uh, so so we will be positioned kind of in the middle. Not 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 the kind of coffee shop where we hope people will come and sit for eight hours. Yep. Um, but we want to be a sense a gathering place and a, and create a community and make it welcoming and warm for you know, kids and adults. Um, but also have a, and, and we also want to be the fastest in town. Nothing drives me more crazy than waiting in line at a coffee shop I and really then, can't and then stand waiting for my coffee. Yeah, and <laughs> and we're going to try. Even if it's great coffee, I still get frustrated. Me too. Um, so and we recognize that that people, most people who come into a coffee shop want fast service. So we're going to try to do a lot of things just a little bit differently, including speed. How many crepes, crepes <laughs> do you think you'll have on the menu? Uh, we're going to start small. We're going to have probably two sweet and two savory. We're working okay. on that right now. We've got a, a wonderfully uh, prominent chef in town who is spearheading that program, whose name I cannot share, but uh, is, is helping us out. I think they will be uh, superb. 
superb crepes and start with start with probably four total and maybe do a seasonal. Yep. And then as we do that well, we can always add more. Uh, but one thing I can absolutely promise is we will have a banana and Nutella. Okay, because that Promise. is sort of the French. Scouts honor. Yeah, that's, yeah. and I'm thinking savory, like maybe ham and cheese, maybe I think spinach we'll and bosson. Yeah. We're going to do simple things really, really well. Okay. Really well. And uh, the coffee program um, will be wonderful, too. Uh, we're buying some beans from Spy House, uh, for whom I have great respect. Yep. And then we're partnered with La Colombe out of uh, Basin, Philadelphia, and um, very uh, widely known on the East Coast. And they've got a uh, not only are their beans and espresso wonderful, but they have a draft latte uh, concept that is uh, second to none. So you'll we'll have latte on tap. Let's talk about that for just mm-hmm. a second. Nitro yeah. um, is a company that has just blown up, blown and up. not only uh, on tap and on draft, but mm-hmm. now the different cans yeah. and. Um, that do you think that we'll see more of that in the coffee world yeah, in the I, United States? This convergence, and you just you mentioned a few moments ago, this convergence of of cocktail bars mm-hmm. with coffee culture mm-hmm. uh, is probably inevitable, yep. and it's starting to absolutely happen. You know, kegging certain coffees, uh, aging uh, aging whiskey and coffee barrels, or or aging Vice coffee versa, and whiskey sure. barrels. I mean, it's there. There's a the whiskey uh, barrels are getting very hard to come by. Really hard for to come by. Distilleries. Tell me about it. <laughs> Uh, so that convergence is interesting, and but and it all stems from this this appetite that uh, people have to understand the stories behind products, and yeah. you know the way the way a coffee bean is grown, where it's grown, who grows it, um, is part of the story, and that's what you're you're, you're drinking a story, and and that's true in cocktails and, and spirits as well. So it's it's kind of uh, I see that happening more and more, and coffee is becoming uh, coffee bars are I think becoming uh, you know the next phase. Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. One last question. Yeah. Um your dad is remembered fondly by so many people as is your your grandmother. When you think about your legacy, what do you want people to remember you by? Cuz you have big giant shoes to fill. <laughs> Mister. I, I do. I do. <laughs> Boy, I recognize it every every day of my life I recognize it. I I want to be remembered for um Investing in people's dreams. I, you know, I've been really lucky in my yeah. life, uh, and the first to admit it. And I was provided opportunity, and I certainly took advantage of it. And I feel it's my responsibility to afford that to as many people as possible, particularly those who aren't as fortunate as I. And none of us have to look too far down the street or around the corner to see kids uh, who, because of the color of their skin uh, or the or the economic position of their parents. Um, are relegated to what we what what our culture relegates them to mediocrity, and I believe they all have the same potential. Yeah. And I want to be remembered as someone who did his best to either build businesses or share resources or inspire people to um, uh, to pursue their dreams. And that, that's is, my that's what I hope my legacy will be someday. And I appreciate so much that you appreciate that um, what you came from. Because if you really look at some of these other people, how hard would that be? Like, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, just get a job. Like when you have no role models and you you aren't in a culture where that's expected of you and you don't even know where to go to get resources or where to get help and you don't necessarily have the family support structure, it's ludicrous for us to just keep telling these people, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, young lady, young man, and they're just... You know, you can't understand where you were born or what you were born into, the privilege that that just exists just because of where you were born. True. Everybody 
Nobody is successful that did it his or her own self. Everybody had a break. Everybody had somebody that believed Mm -hmm. in them, um, afforded them an opportunity, Uh, no matter what they say, no matter what entrepreneur you talk to. Everybody has somebody that helped them out. And um, I just think it's our responsibility to to do that for others. And um, uh, if I fail at that, then I've failed at my life, I would argue. Well, you have kids coming up, I do. I've got two daughters, Daniela, who's an 18-year-old freshman at Boulder, and I've got a 16-year-old daughter at Blake, Pia. Are we going to see Pia with the uh, broom and the dustpan <laughs> oh, at yeah. the coffee shop? Daniela, Daniela <laughs> helped us order uh, some of our furnishings for pennies, and she was an intern uh, this, this summer right. for us and helped helped a lot and with kind of our social media construction. Sure. And Pia just did our first barista training. So, oh, yeah. Oh, All yeah. right. I they'll love be, that. They'll be working. And that $15 an hour kind of got their attention, too. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. Good luck. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure a big I'll fan. And I'm in grateful. pennies. Thank you so much. Yeah, come on by for a cup of coffee and a crepe. Stay tuned for 60-second AP News headlines. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. An F-16 pilot having hydraulic problems with his aircraft managed to parachute to safety as the plane smashed into a warehouse east of Los Angeles. Fire Captain Fernando Herrera. That pilot landed in the uh, March Air Force Base area. In the base itself. Amazingly, there were no serious injuries after the plane hit the building. Alabama executed a man last night for his role in killing four people after an argument over a pickup truck. Tennessee executed a man who killed his wife. Reporters couldn't see the execution, but AP correspondent Travis Lawler says... We could hear sounds, uh, including a singing that uh, uh, Mr. Johnson's attorney says was him singing a hymn. Answering a reporter's question, President Trump said he hopes the U.S. is not on a path to war with Iran. Mr. Trump has dismissed suggestions that any of his advisors are trying to push him into a conflict. I'm Rita Foley.